Good morning. I'm eagerly awaiting the so post lady, awaiting the post lady for some 3D printer bits. So if I go and look over there and then suddenly rush away and it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's for the post lady. I'll explain why when I show you my broken 3D printer bits in just a moment. Actually, I can't show you the broken bits. I can show you the bits that go into the broken bits and then I'll explain exactly what has gone on. G'day Wayne, thank you for joining. Uh, straight into it today because I do have a bunch of content, including a brand new blog post, which I did allude to last week. So it won't be too much of a surprise for people that are paying attention. But I do want to talk about it because it's super cool and I'm very, very happy to have this out there. Sponsor first, Collide is back as sponsor this week, providing endpoint security for teams that value privacy. Very important. Privacy, transparency, also very important. Good lead in to when we talk about paying passwords and employee productivity. Try Collide for free today. Uh, and as Collide has always done, they've got a nice link here to go and get yourself some free Collide to go and check out what they do so they can help me do what I do. So big thanks to Collide. Please keep uh, supporting sponsors and checking out sponsors. It does really help me sit here and pay for broken 3D printer parts, <laughs> which we will get to imminently. Ah, look at that. It's the first thing on my list. Okay, so just... um. Whilst I'm picking up my broken printer parts, <laughs> it is, where are we, nine o'clock in the morning. It's a little bit later than normal. It's been a bit of a slow week. I've been tired. It's a lot on. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about 3D printers for a moment. I thought I turned off all the beepy things, except for that one. The, the 3D printers, it's, it's, like a, it's like IoT. It's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> You know, like it's it's really really good fun when everything works really well, uh, and then when it when it doesn't, it's it's less so. Um, g'day, Stefan. I see you there. Thank you for joining. You'll be very very useful. <laughs> very, you're always useful, mate. But extra useful in a moment. So it is a bit of a love hate relationship. Now, I'll give you a little uh, a little three D printer one on one as to how the thing works, uh, and I brought with me some sample filament. So this is a, a bit of printer filament, which for all intents and purposes is plastic with chemicals in it, I guess. Not an expert on this. That gets fed through into something very, very hot, gets melted, goes out a nozzle, and it goes onto the bed. And then, of course, it's, it's a very, very precise machine. It's, it's you know, obviously x-axis, y-axis. That sounds really formal and official, doesn't it? It gets melted down and very precisely placed on a heat bed, and it slowly builds up into a model. Now, I was having a problem, which I shared via a tweet, there's a tweet thread on this, where I was finding that as my filament was going down, it was coming out through the nozzle. I'm going to show you bit by bit and we'll sort of work back up. So this is what a nozzle looks like. For those of you listening to me later on, it is, this is a 0.4 millimeter nozzle, which means the hole in the end is 0.4 millimeters. Uh, the entire thing is about the size of my little finger fingernail. So they're very, very small. But if you can imagine, there's a whole bunch of stuff upstream of this. And then eventually this filament comes down into the nozzle down here and gets forced through the nozzle when it's uh, very, very, very hot. Uh, in the case of this particular type of filament, about 230 degrees. This is, a, this is a PLA filament. And then the nozzle spreads all over. Now the nozzle sits inside what's called a heat block. Uh, and the heat block is, let me guess, it's probably about 30 mil long by about 
20 mil wide by another 20 mil high. Uh, and it is, I think it's an aluminium block. Someone will tell me I'm wrong here and it's something that's more heat resistant or something. It looks metal. It gets hot. So it gets hot and it heats this. Now it's got a little heater cartridge in it. There's a couple of wires come down to this heater cartridge. That's going to be very important in just a moment. And that's what heats it up. And that's on one side of this little nozzle. And then on the other side is a thermistor so it can measure the temperature. So then all the electronics of the printer between the heat cartridge and the thermistor can keep heating and cooling until it gets it at just the right temperature. This then goes down. Now what I found was that out the top of the heat block, some of this stuff, the filament, was leaking and then it was eventually, it was leaking very, very slowly, but eventually falling over the side of the heat block and I'll get little blobs of like burned crappy filament on the bed. So I tried fixing this a month ago by disassembling bits and pieces. So I removed the heat block from, I'm gonna put this together and show what it looks like now. I moved the heat block from the heat sink. There's a heat sink. So if we imagine everything going together here, like the filament comes in here, comes in, in this PTF tube, comes down here. There's a little screw here. I'll explain what that is in a moment. It's a heat break. And then off the bottom is this. And then somewhere holding all this together is the heat block. If I put it close to my face, it will focus. So I was getting this filament leaking and I undid this. And then I did it back up again and I tightened it all and I thought I was fine. Now, this would really help with pictures, wouldn't it? Yesterday, yesterday, the day before, I went in and I tried to fix it again. <laughs> but this time I was a little bit smarter because I actually asked on, uh, on one of the Facebook groups for Prusa printers. I was like, what's going wrong with this? And everyone had the answer straight away. So what actually happens is I'm holding three different printer parts here. So I've got my little uh, uh, heat sink here. This is called a heat break. And for those of you that can possibly just about see that, I've got to focus on this and not me. Ah, good luck with that. The heat break has a short screw on one side, a long screw on the other side, and then a narrower center. And the idea is, is that everything between the heat nozzle and the heat break like this sits inside the heat block. And then everything up here on this side sits inside the, um, <laughs> I've completely lost my mind now. What did I call this again? I just said it so many times. Heat sink. How many times have I said heatsink in my life and then I can't remember? So, they all sit in there together. Now, what can happen is that if there is a gap between the nozzle and the heat break, now it's normally not this big, it might be a millimetre fragment's sake, then the filament can ooze out here and ooze off the top of the heat block, it'll be sitting like that, and then fall down on your print and everything becomes messy. So, this gap just here is actually really, really important. And I discovered that the nozzle was done all the way back up to the heat block, which means that probably within the heat block, there was this little gap. No problems, I'll unscrew it. I'll screw it back up together, job done. Now, every single tutorial I've ever read about messing around with your heat block says, be very careful not to break any of the wires because they don't have a strain relief on them. They're just sort of hanging off the side of the heat block. It's really easy to snap them off. Be very careful not to break the wires. And I knew this. So anyway, I broke a wire. <laughs> so I'm, just, I'm looking at this heat block and it's, it's, being, uh, it's being held on by 
the heater cartridge with one wire on it and the other one broken off, and then the thermistor's got both wires. Long story short is that I sort of went, well, do I, I could order another heater cartridge and they're like 20 bucks or something like that, uh, and that's not so bad, and then I could... But the design's kind of shitty. Like this whole thing here where we've got this gap between the nozzle and the heat break, and if you don't have them perfectly right, it leaks, is kind of shitty. It's kind of shitty. There's no strain relief on the cables and they can fall off. And also it's a kind of odd design where you've got this heater cartridge and then you've got a nozzle in the middle and then you've got a thermistor on the other side and this is measuring this. So this bit's going to get really hot and then it's gradually going to cool down before it gets to here and then your cartridge and all your, uh, your filament in the middle is going to be somewhere halfway between long story short i ordered a uh, revo 6 which effectively combines the nozzle and the heat brake together so this now looks like one part so this is part of it the heat block so the big bit at the end rather than having like an external heater cartridge which plugs into it is all built in together and the heater cartridge effectively circles the whole thing rather than just being off to one side and the thermistor's built into it and then it's got a nice strain relief on it so the whole thing looks really really nicely engineered now the big value proposition of this and as soon as my post lady arrives if she's here in time i can show you the big value proposition is you can also change nozzles very quickly because these things get super, super hot. Like these are, as I said, 200 plus degrees Celsius. Uh, so once they're super, super hot, you have to let them cool down before you remove them. And then they really need to be hot before you put them back in or you got to tighten them when they're hot. Messy, 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 messy. So these Revo 6s, like you literally just undo them with your fingers. The whole thing comes out because it's like nozzle and heat break all together. And they just look, if, if I'm honest, the way they look the way I think the printer should have been designed in the first place. So people seem to be very happy with them. I'm hoping, well, I know that this will fix this problem. I'm hoping it actually gives me a more reliable machine later on as well. Uh, not just in everyday printing because there's no longer this gap, but also if ever I do change the nozzle. Hmm. Now in the comments. G'day Dave, Dave's here, Matt's here. Uh, is it a RepRap printer or some commercialized printer? It is a Prusa Mark III S which I'm enormously happy with. And, and what I will say is I'm especially happy with the, the community around it and Prusa as an organisation as well. I think that they are, uh, they've done a remarkable job. They've made a really, really good community. And when I first started looking at 3D printers early last year, like the first, was it even? Yeah, it was the first few days of last year. And I asked what I should get. The overwhelming majority of people were like, just go and get a Prusa. So I will be well and truly sticking with Prusa, but I, I do think a little bit of modding of the Prusa is in order. Other than that, it's been, it's been pretty good, but it is a labor of love. There's a, there's a lot of tweaking and mucking around to try and get stuff to behave uh, consistently. And it's not static either because it requires maintenance uh, and things like nozzles, etc., do wear out over time. This is actually my second nozzle and it's another 0.4 millimetre, and I've only ever printed with the same size nozzle. So not being able to foresee that I would break the printer this week, only about a week ago I ordered a bunch of other nozzles to try, which are now completely irrelevant because the new Revo 6 has a completely different nozzle design. So anyway, more photos of that inbound. Feel free to ask any more 3D printing related questions and I'll do my best. 
while you're thinking about that, data breaches. Where are we with data breaches? I have spent a bunch of time this week doing have I been pwned things in one form or another. So let me talk about breaches because I did put uh, put two breaches in. Did I do two breaches? Three breaches. I've done three breaches this week. Grand Theft Auto Online cheats. Paragon cheats. 188,000 records breached in May last year. Exposed uh, usernames, email, IP addresses. 48% of them already have been pwned. It, it's amazing how commercial the cheats market is. And I feel like I was speaking about cheats only one or two weeks ago because there are other cheat services which i loaded i think one of them was aimware yeah aimware may the second went in there and uh, i made the comment that a recent darknet diaries episode was diving into the cheats industry and it was fascinating it was like i learned a lot i think it's just amazing that this thing exists there as a commercial market and that people are like yeah sure this this sounds fine so yes odd odd thing but that's now and have i been pwned uh seen matt's comment nozzles all but become useless if let your hot plastic cool in them uh, even if eat it up so hard to get all the plastic out of it i went through my share of nozzles heat them up again what size is your nozzle so this one was 0.4 and i was you might have joined just after it but i was just saying i, I ordered a, a, a pack of other sizes there was a, a 0.6 a 0.8 a 0.25 i'm never going to end up using them because they're all this size and now the Revo 6 has a completely different nozzle design. But that ships. Let me answer your question exactly, Matt. Uh, Revo 6. What does that come with? Mm-hmm. That comes with a pack. If you buy the fully loaded pack, uh, fully loaded kit. What's in the fully loaded? Fully loaded nozzle kit. There is a 0.25, 0.4, 0.6, and a 0.8. There you go. So I guess I guess we'll see. At least now it'll sort of compel me to change nozzles a bit more and have a play. I'm uh, I'm actually kind of keen to do some of the vases with like really really fat nozzles. Not so much because I can just print them fast, but I think some of those layers actually look really cool when you do thick layers on a, a vase design or something like that. Alrighty, so that was one data breach. The uh, the cheats one, Paragon cheats. Uh, another one here, OG users, poor OG users. Oh. If you're not familiar with the term OG, it often refers to very unique, succinct usernames. Uh, there's been all sorts of things, again, on Darknet Diaries. Let's do listen to Darknet Diaries if you don't already tune into Jack's podcast. But the, the concept of very short and, of course, unique usernames, because every username's got to be unique, it, it, it's something that is very valuable to people. Uh, if you could have a username, Jack's a good example. Wouldn't you love, not just because it's like Jack Dorsey, but wouldn't you love to have the username Jack because it's such a short, succinct thing? I don't think anyone cares too much about a username like Troy Hunt other than messing with me. But the point is that there are lots of usernames out there that are very short, succinct, and therefore high value. OG users refers to a hacking forum uh, inevitably, part of the genesis was around obtaining and selling uh, OG usernames. They 
somewhat ironically, uh, have now made their third appearance in Have I Been Pwned. Apparently, it's their fourth data breach. I've missed one somewhere in there. Their third appearance uh, in Have I Been Pwned. April last year, 348,000 usernames, email and IP addresses. How many of those IP addresses are real, you know? So... And I don't say that as in not many of them. I say that as in I bet a lot of them do tie back to individuals. Previous breaches of OG users have had uh, private messages included in the breach. Now, I don't know if they were obtained or not this time, but they weren't in the data that I was sent. But that would be unfortunate for some people to have like your private messages, possibly your real IP address, some ProtonMail email address. Anyway. 72% 72% of those already in Have I Been Pwned. I thought it would be high, but it looks like there are a lot more subscribers in the fourth data breach than what there were in the second data breach. Uh, and a lot of them weren't already in Have I Been Pwned. So I thought it would be very, very high because it's another breach at the same service. So 100% of the previous email addresses are in there and there are new ones. There's the third one, Chinese Blackberry fans. <laughs> I said this to Charlotte. I was like, I loaded a Blackberry for him. And she's like... Does that still exist? So, I guess so. And like this, not as in like the, the berry, the fruit thing. Like this actually is a fan site for the devices. I think BlackBerry do still do something, but man, it have to be niche, wouldn't it? Anyway, it's Chinese, 174,000 usernames, email and IP addresses, passwords stored as salted MD5 hashes. 74% of those already in Have I Been Pwned. So uh, that's a lot of those. In fact, there's one more. I did four data breaches this week. I've been busy. Read novel. 22 million email addresses from May 2019. Usernames. Genders, because you need gender to be able to read a novel, apparently. Phone. MD5 password hashes. Good on you guys. 31% already have a been pwned. Bit hard to verify that one. I've put it in there as unverified. I've linked through to my canonical blog posts on how hard it is to verify Chinese data breaches. Uh, you, you don't even, well, I think it would be, picking my words carefully, everything's on the record. It would be extraordinarily hard to go through the verification and disclosure process for a service like this. Uh, and there are many references to it, having had a data breach. But all the dots did line up in terms of the data itself, uh, pointing to it being legitimate. But with a little bit of a shadow of doubt, it's flagged as unverified. So four new breaches gone in. There's always a backlog. There's a massive backlog. And I, I appreciate it when people send me through data. But every single time, I'm, I'm just sort of looking at it going, oh, shit, how am I going to disclose this? Someone asked me recently, they said, I oh, did, the, did the AVO data breach, the one where I went through and effectively just recorded the entire attempt to get in touch with them uh, and eventually got nowhere and loaded anyway. <laughs> Someone asked, was like, well, did they ever reach out? I said, no. I sent 20,000 plus emails to impacted people. Nothing. Like, we've heard nothing. People don't care. Which is a bit sad. Fixing Stripe payments. Actually... Matt's given us some important BlackBerry news. BlackBerry today is a cybersecurity company out of Canada. Really? The same one? Got me wondering. If I search for BlackBerry, what do I actually get? 
Uh, Blackberry.com, secure devices. Blackberry.com is still there. Secure devices. Blackberry secures devices from handheld to the Internet of Things. Learn how Blackberry technology extends to cybersecurity. Okay. Critical event management, embedded systems, and beyond. Our smartphone heritage. I kind of feel like when you begin by looking back, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not the most positive message. Um, the device that they've got on there still has a physical keyboard. Who's old enough to remember when, uh, when Blackberries ruled? And the thing that really made them rule is a physical keyboard. And then the iPhone was just launching and Ballmer came out, Steve Ballmer. And he's, I've literally used this one of my talks. He's just like joking around with the reporter going, no one's going to take it seriously. It doesn't even have a, a physical keyboard. And as soon as I saw this with a physical keyboard, I just realized how long it's been since I've seen a physical keyboard. There's a good reason for that. Anyway, I think Matt's partly right there. They do seem to be leaning on the cybersecurity. Fixing Stripe payments. I, I put this in there because it's just consumed a bunch of my time this week behind the scenes trying to fix something that I did not right. <laughs> now, let me, let me quantify this. Qualify this. Um, Hello, Pony's got this API key. You pay $3.50 a month. You get the API key. One request every 1,500 milliseconds. Uh, you got to put in a credit card to get it because... I was finding there was a lot of abuse on that endpoint. So there was a lot of abuse to the API. Rate limits weren't fixing it. The way I solved the problem almost entirely, I'm not going to explain the edge cases, but almost entirely, is to require someone to put forth a credit card in order to get the API. Uh, Now, this wasn't designed to make money. This was designed to pose a barrier to entry that required some form of quasi-identification. Now, I can't tell a lot, me personally, just from a credit card, but what I can tell is that someone is, A, motivated enough to actually want to part with $3.50, which incidentally is about what a coffee costs, a decent coffee, thank you very much, for a month. Uh, and, and second of all, it, it, what it really did is those who were going to be abusive generally don't tend to want to put forward a legitimate credit card attached to them, even if I don't necessarily see that it's attached to them, and put that forward and put it into a formal system uh, and and then do their abusive things attached to that. So 99% plus the abuse just disappeared straight away. Fantastic. Happy days. I did this in, I think it was August 2019, on a table in an Airbnb in Oslo on my laptop when I was under a huge amount of pressure from a combination of the have I been pwned merger and acquisition process and as people later learned a divorce as well. So everything was happening at the same time. It was an enormously stressful period and I I don't want to say I did this under duress because no one forced me to do it but I did it at a point when uh, when I didn't have the time and the luxury of the current environment I have to build software properly. So I built some technical debt. Now, one of those technical debts which has revealed itself over the time is because I'd never used Stripe before and I really didn't understand the Stripe paradigms of processing a card, uh, what, what, a, what a subscription is, a charge is, uh, just a, even a lot of the sort of basic fundamentals of the hierarchy of payments within Stripe. And what I built 
worked, and it's actually worked really, really well, but there's been a bunch of messy little bits around it. And one of the messy things has been that uh, in order to change your credit card number, the easiest way I could do it at the time was to say, look, just cancel the subscription. Okay, bang, subscription's now dead. Now go and make a new subscription because the process of making a new subscription asks for a credit card. So that will be the way that I do this. Now, the bad thing about that was that if you're one day into your subscription and you've basically got all of your $3.50 yet to spend, then you lose $3.50. But I justified it by saying it's $3.50, get over it. You know, like this is just the easiest way for me to do this. But what was actually more important, and this is something that's, that's, that's been a bit painful, is that somewhere in there, in, in a space in the code, in a set of conditions I have still not established, some people who changed their card ended up with two simultaneous subscriptions. And I've just had all these people, well, it's not like hundreds or anything like that, but a bunch of people pop up and say, hey, I'm getting billed twice per month now. And part of the problem there was that they'd go into their account on Have I Been Pwned and it would say, look, you've got a subscription, this is when it's active till. And then they'd cancel it, but it would only cancel one subscription. Then there'd be this other subscription, which is still active. So the way I've tied Stripe and Have I Been Pwned together just hasn't done a good job of showing this is everything that you have in Stripe and everything that's running at the moment. So gradually behind the scenes, and I've not tweeted any of this, you guys are first to hear about this. Gradually behind the scenes, I've just been adding more and more, I guess, transparency to what is happening in Stripe in that Have I Been Pwned payments page so that if someone's getting billed twice, for example, they can go in and they can see every single charge. They can see every single subscription. And I've consciously said, look, that it, it is technically possible for there to be more than one subscription. So if I can list them both and they can see them both, that's great, transparency. So the next thing I've got to do is just make sure that we don't end up <laughs> with two subscriptions. But I kind of wanted to work from the grassroots up. It's like, let's show everything that is there, just full transparency, and then we'll go through and we'll fix the problem that's causing the multiple ones. Uh, so I think uh, perhaps today or early next week, I'll get to the bit of just making sure that we don't charge people twice because that's not cool on anyone. Matt says, I had a RIM messenger. RIM, of course, Research in Motion being the company that made BlackBerry. Sold as an AOL messenger around 2000 or so. Um, yeah, wow. Around 2000 or so. What I have then? I had, uh, it must have been into the 2000s, I had Windows mobile devices. And then I got to, I think my first iPhone was an iPhone 3, and I've just been on iPhone <laughs> ever since. Stefan dropped off, but he's back. Cool. Now that you're back, <laughs> let's talk about the work that Stefan's done this week. Now, I partly mentioned this last week, but now that we've actually done the work and published it, I can, uh, I can talk about it in proper context. So Pwn Passwords has been going from strength to strength in terms of the volumes it's been used. And if we go back to December 2020, 2021, so December just gone, when we launched the open source bit with the FBI pipeline, the NCA pipeline, I had a graph in there showing 1.26 billion requests in a month. And I was counting down to that 1 billion mark, like that was going to be such a massive milestone. And it happened, I think, somewhere around the middle of last year. In the blog post I just pushed out, we've gone from 1.26 billion all up to 1.98 billion, and it's growing really, really rapidly. 
So the adoption rate is fantastic. We're very, very happy to see those numbers come through. The API usage is great, but we did still keep getting questions about when are we going to be able to download the hash sets again? Because there are a bunch of people that, for one reason or another, don't want to query the online API. Now, I think for the most part, they're wrong, <laughs> if, to put it very, very bluntly, because I'll hear things like, oh, we just don't, we don't want the online dependency. Yeah, but you're using this on an online system where your customers come to register. Yeah, well, you we, we don't want the external dependency. Well, I, you can have the external dependency and you write a tiny bit of code, or you can avoid that dependency and write masses of code to basically build your own thing, or you just pull down all the open source pwn passwords, but you still have to go and stand up your own infrastructure and feed it and water it and pay for it and all the rest of it, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And the, the other thing is, now I'm on my high horse about this, and Stefan, chime in here too, because you're very good at this. So, so Stefan implemented uh, pwn passwords in EVE Online. So Stefan works for CCP Games, which makes EVE Online. They were certainly the first big user of pwn passwords that I know of. But the other thing is you can build this into your authentication pipeline and just fail quickly if you can't get a response. You know, Give it 100 milliseconds, don't get a response, fail quickly. If you have an occasion where you can't check if someone's password's been used before, that doesn't have to be a showstopper because most organizations aren't doing that anyway. Uh, and then we get massive availability because everything's in a Cloudflare Edge node and there's 270 cities with those. So. I still think the online one's the best bet, but some of the showstoppers come because there'll be a compliance officer somewhere and they'll have a list. And if you've ever seen a compliance officer with a list, oh my God. And there's a box. We will never send passwords to external parties. Well, it's not a password. It's a fragment of a SHA-1 hash of a password. Yes, but the compliance officer doesn't under... Anyway, whatever. Okay, so you've got to run it locally. I was worried that in order to replicate the model that we had prior to December, that is a model where there is a massive zip file. I mean, even once it was seven zipped, it was still like 20 gigabytes or something. It's a massive zip file where this model required this massive, massive file. And we would have to, yeah, normally I'd do this manually on my machine over a period of days. It's like, okay, I'm maintaining this database with all the latest passwords for the next release. And eventually I'm going to dump them all to a text file. I'm going to seven zip it. That'll take eight hours because it's a massive freaking file. And then I'll upload that over my internet, which because I'm in Australia probably also takes eight hours. And eventually it will all be up there and you can download it. And it was a very high friction process. And I was honestly worried about how I'd do this. And then as I said last week, I, I had this epiphany. I was, I was sitting there in my steam shower pondering the world, which is like, well, why don't we just hit the API? We'll just literally enumerate through the API because there's only 16 of the power of five different requests, which is a million and a bit. I reckon Stefan could make a million and a bit requests really quickly. Uh, so I threw that idea over to him. Uh, he wrote some code. Next minute, here we are. So we've got a pwned passwords downloader, which simply just hits the existing public API. I'm actually gonna reload the stats on this because I pushed this blog post out just before and I'm wondering if people are gonna start to um, start to hit it in anger now because of course what's gonna happen is anyone who downloads this app and runs the whole thing is gonna make over 1 million requests to the same API that I keep 
reporting all these stats on. We've done um, about 75 million requests in the last 24 hours, uh, which is, that's a pretty high number if I look at the last month. Not peak though, we did did 91.5 million requests on the 10th. That might have been Stefan and I testing, <laughs> because obviously every time we run this, it's like a million plus requests get added to the, to the telly. Now, I was, I was sort of thinking as I was steaming, I was like, okay, well, what's this going to do performance-wise? Because downloading a zip file is pretty easy, right? Uh, that is a, a pretty efficient mechanism. One file, download it, you'll get however many megabits a second, so long as you're not in Australia, then we often don't measure in megabits. <laughs> Different issue. What will it look like if you're just making requests for hash ranges? And I thought, well, everything's HTTP compressed using Brotly because Cloudflare will Brotly compress everything that they serve from their edge, which is great. Uh, you've got 99 point something percent of requests are coming from an edge node within 50 milliseconds of 90% plus of the world. So it's going to be close. So really all we're talking about now is how many, how many parallel requests can we make? You know, we've got to make just over a million requests. And this is what Stefan's done with his code. So he's just massively parallel, made it go together. Uh, So he can pull down a huge amount of requests together. You'll see that there is a switcher there on the command line to be able to decide how parallel you want to make this, which is great. as is the theme, as all things pwned passwords, everything is there open source. It's in a public repository. PRs welcome, issues welcome. Uh, and then, Stefan, tell me here if I get the nomenclature wrong, but you've also pushed this out to NuGet. Now, I'm used to using NuGet as a package manager, and I pull packages into my Visual Studio projects. But the way Stefan's pushed it out there, you can, from the command line of your machine, assuming you're running, tell me if I get this wrong, .NET 6, and I think you have to be running the, it's like the dev toolkit or the SDK or something to that effect. But if you're running that from the command line, you can just go install pwn passwords, pulls it down from NuGet, installs it locally, run the command, job done. So we don't need people to be living in a Visual Studio world or anything like that to be able to run the app. All right, I'm seeing a bunch of comments here I'm going to look at. Incidentally, I do repeat these comments. Uh, for the sake of people that listen to this on a podcast as well, the, the podcast does get downloaded a bit. So Stefan says, HIB API is so fast that we have our timeout set low, like two seconds, as it almost, and it almost never hits that. Yeah, it should almost never hit that. Matt says, as long as password is strong, who cares if they use it over and over? What should be forced is MFA. Oh, boy. The reason we care if they use it over and over is because breach it once and everything gets put at risk. This is why that uniqueness is so important. On MFA, have a think about how many public services you use that force MFA and think of it as a percentage. I can't think of a single service I use that forces MFA. Maybe one of the government services that forces MFA via SMS. But the, the, I guess where I'm going here is that n- no, let's say no one, asterisk rounds to no one, no one forces MFA because it's a terrible user experience. It is a diabolically bad user experience. And if you don't believe me, go and set up for my parents. It's terrible. Now, the exception, something like a government service, 
you don't have a choice. Your employer, you don't have a choice. Like you want to work here, you're going to have to carry around your YubiKey or if you want to you know, claim your, your healthcare benefits or whatever it may be, you're going to have to receive an SMS to your phone number. But there are places where we have captive audiences who don't have the ability to go and shop somewhere else because they think the user experience is sucky. So that's a really, really important thing. Like MFA is a technically wonderful solution and a human usable, measurable experience. And I will stand by that position until something fundamentally changes. Now, Stefan has clarified the risk of user using that password. Uh, okay, I'm just catching up on the conversation here. I still don't think MFA is a good idea in terms of mandating it. Uh, as Peter then says, for, uh, forcing MFA will generate a lot of friction on your subscriber base, hence almost no one doing it. Matt says, get rid of usernames and passwords, which I was about to argue with, and then he said lol, so I'm going to assume that the lol invalidates everything before that. Uh, okay, what else is new here? Peter says, also, MFA can be bypassed. Most recent one is just spamming MFA requests until the user accepts. Uh, I've heard that mentioned so many times on Risky Business as well. We might be uh, uh, reading the same material, listening to the same material, Peter. So just to clarify that for everyone, the, the, the topic that's come up is that if people get enough annoying messages, for example, approving uh, an MFA prompt, if you do it over and over and over and over again, they'll come a point where they're going to stop ignoring it and they're going to action it just to make it go away which of course is terrible it's absolutely terrible uh also a good reason why things like uh u2f keys are so valuable because they're not fishable they're not something that you can you can effectively spam someone to death with as well stefan says the dotnet tool command the you get Okay, I think this is half Icelandic, so I didn't, I didn't entirely get that, mate. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's in the blog post. Uh, and then you know, Matt rightly says, in, in the case of the, uh, of the of the MFA stuff, uh, in the end, it will always be a user error that causes the breach. In that respect, yes, if they if you spam them to MFA and they accept it. But in the same way that if you've reused credentials or you've used a weak credential, then yes, that's a, that is still a user error. I'm going to be cautious here because otherwise people say I'm victim blaming. That is a user error that contributes to the breach. There are also then a lack of controls on behalf of the service to stop it from happening. Uh, and that's another rabbit hole altogether. <sighs> what else in here? Peter says, GitHub will soon force you as a contributor to enable MFA. Now, see, I think we've got to recognize that GitHub sits in a very different space to, let, let me pick a good example, sits in a very different space to our local cinema. Uh, now, GitHub, people writing code, that code is highly valuable for all sorts of reasons. We see so many attacks against GitHub. That code has very high impact uh, if it is obtained in many cases. Local cinema website. You can see which movies you booked. Uh, maybe pull some PII because maybe you put your home address and your phone number or something in there. Uh, arguably not as high impact as getting someone's code base. Demographic different as well. People using GitHub are for the most part highly technical. Uh, they understand what a second factor is and what the risk is and what the impact of compromise is. Uh, people using the cinema, my mum and dad, 
not highly technical. So different demographics. There is a spectrum here. There's absolutely a spectrum. And I would argue that GitHub is the sort of organization that could get away with forcing it where many others couldn't. Matt knows MFA is horrible. <laughs> Stefan says the .NET tool. Now, air quotes, .NET tool, as in a term. The .NET tool command works similar to NPM. It allows you to easily install command line tools and it makes it easy for us to update them as well. There we go. Heard it first from Stefan. Matt says both the company and school use MFA to access their systems, which is pretty much the point I was making where when you are captive, you know, when when they own your ass for all intents and purposes, it's like, you want to get paid? Yep. Okay. This is the way you log on. That's, uh, that's something that they can do that the local cinema can't do. Matt uses Duo. Duo is very popular for that. Nick007 says, completely agree with you with MFA. It works until it doesn't. And look, I myself have had so many times where I have been confused by MFA. And the, the examples that come to mind mostly are my Microsoft accounts. That Microsoft Authenticator, because you've got to use their Authenticator. As far as I know, you can't use like an authy or tie it into your 1Password 2FA remember a generator a code thing. And the number of times like I've rolled a, rolled a device and then it hasn't come across cleanly and it's taken me a lot of time to figure it out. There's one other account I use, not Microsoft, which is a very important account to me and I still can't figure out how to get it enrolled properly because I had it on another device and it's wanting me to get the other device and remove it so I can put on this device. So I have to fall back to a weaker form of 2FA, but a weaker form of 2FA because it's so confusing. And if I'm sitting here being confused by it and I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff, What's it like for mum and dad and everyone else? Peter says, MFA prompt spamming also came up a bunch of times during Osert talks. Okay. Certainly a thing. Stefan says, imagine the fallout if Apple or Google forced MFA for all of their users. My phone would never stop as I'd have to quit my job to become technical support for my entire family. I think one where the opportunity is here, like let's let's think about our mobile devices. I've got my iPhone here in my hand. Where the opportunity is for something like Apple or Google is they are able to do authentication in such a much more sophisticated fashion than just string matching and a secondary prompt. And here's what I mean by this. For the most part, authentication is you've got two strings in your head. One is a username kind of public the other is a password that's private and then there's two strings on the system you're authenticating to and you enter these two in and if those two match those two and then you're good to go and that is it it's a very binary proposition uh, and then we add 2fa do you have the right token yes cool you get in you get everything no you get nothing where it gets interesting and particularly when you when you own a lot more of the ecosystem such as with these devices is that there's a lot of gray area and nuances in there. So things like user behavioral analytics. Uh, Troy normally authenticates from this device, from this location at this time of day, does these things once authenticated. Now he's doing something which doesn't match that pattern. And rather than looking at it as, as a binary, you're not logged in, you get nothing, you are logged in, you get everything. Now we start to look at it as a gradient. So there is a degree of confidence, and at certain points within that confidence, you may or may not be able to do certain things. 
uh, if it's your bank, you've probably all seen this, I see it with my bank, regardless of of how confident they are that I've logged on from the same device, from the same location at the same time, there are certain things I can do without any additional challenge. But if I need to, I think if I need to pay like more than $5,000 to an account I haven't paid to before, then I have an additional challenge which I have to solve. Doesn't have to be perfect, none of this is perfect, but it is something in addition because now the risk level is going up. And I like that kind of thing. And I particularly like it when it's done in a very transparent fashion where you don't see it. And it makes you wonder how many times that happens and you don't see it. It definitely happens with your bank and it definitely happens with a lot of the big authentication services like Apple and Google and Microsoft and all the rest of them. Matt says, Microsoft allows you to use PIN to log into a computer. What do you think about that? Very good question. So, uh, Let's clarify the, the, the places that that will work. So when you have a Microsoft account, you have an email address and a password. It's pretty simple stuff. And you can have 2FA on it. And if you have these things, you can log on from this PC, this PC, my iPhone, uh, an internet cafe on the other side of the world, like wherever, and that's fine. Now, the pin that's used as part of Windows Hello is something that is tied to your device. I can log on, for example, to my laptop with a pin. That pin only works on that machine. That is the only place it works. And, and pin is a bit of a disingenuous term, too. And I think Microsoft does, what do I actually say? Do they say pin? Let me see. Sign in options. Yes, it says pin. Now, of course, the N in PIN is number, but your PIN doesn't have to be a number, so your PIN can have letters as well. So when I actually look at my laptop here, it's giving me multiple different ways of signing in. I can sign in with the password for my Microsoft account. I can sign in with a smart card. I can sign in with a PIN. I can sign in with my finger. And what Microsoft is trying to do here is to give people different choices. The whole password is a suboptimal experience, let's be honest. Also, I can't remember Microsoft password. <laughs> I've got no idea what it is. It's in my password somewhere, password manager somewhere. I can find it if I need to. Fingerprint is great until I've been in the pool too long, and then you come out and you're all sort of pruny. So the pin is a, is a middle ground. Now, you can put a really complex pin there. You can make it more complex than your password if you want. But the pin is great for a mechanism that is fast to log on. Now, for me, my general order of operations goes fingerprint, and that works 99% of the time. Uh, I do have a pin I think I, I, think I can remember <laughs> if I need it. It only works on that machine. So that's, that's just a really critical point there, Matt. It only works on that machine. So as a means of lowering the barrier to entry, but creating a little bit more risk, but needing physical access to the device. So you've got to have physical access to that device for it to work. <sighs> James says, I think Apple accounts do enforce MFA now via a secondary device prompt. I'm not even sure. I use so many Apple devices every day, and I'm not even sure. I just follow the prompts. Magpie Lark says, aren't Google, Microsoft, and Apple working towards a passwordless system in their new passkey standard? Um, there, what was all that Fido news recently? I kind of tuned out of it. 
Fido does have an ability to be simultaneously very important and very boring. But there was a lot of news about two weeks ago about the major players all trying to work on at least at least identity standards for how we do uh, authentication. We are moving forward, but it's slow. It's very slow. It's, it's a lot of moving parts out there on, in technology world. Matt says, so I'm guessing you signed up your device to their system and it sends you a one-time password each time you log on with your username, which is the way a lot of second factor auth works. Stefan says they're a bit passwordless. They are, but passwordless is very far off and will probably never be reality. As Troy has asked a few times on Twitter, uh, <laughs> Stefan's paying attention. Troy has asked, are you using fewer or more passwords today than the same time last year? Uh, it's a rhetorical question. It's more. Simply because you never get rid of the old ones. You just get new ones. <sighs> As Peter says, same with Microsoft. Only works on that machine. If you don't reuse your bank card pin, yes. So the, the concept of uniqueness is still very relevant. Um, but... I mean, I agree with you. Let's just play that risk out as well. So if you reuse your bank card pin and someone gets your bank card pin, then yes, they can get into your PC. But in an era when we're surrounded by online account takeover attacks from kids in their bedrooms on the other side of the world, we're now talking about a scenario where someone sees you using your credit card is able to shoulder surf what you enter the pin, follows you back to your house, breaks in one day, steals your computer, and then logs in. Now, I'm not saying that's not possible. That, that is feasible. It's feasible. I'm sure it's happened. But the likelihood of joining all of that together compared to the other thing that we're really, really trying to tackle, which is mass account takeover, tax credential stuffing, all the usual shenanigans... I know which one I'm actually most worried about. Still don't reuse your pins, but a little bit of a uh, little bit of context as to how much we actually need to worry about these things. Okay, folks, I think we uh, we are pretty much there this week. What's happening the next week? I'll have another event to announce <laughs> by the time we get to next week. Uh, in fact, by the time we get to next week, we will we will almost be in winter. Next week will be my last non-winter update. It is getting chilly here. We are down to 21 Celsius at almost 10 a.m., so it's getting very cold this time of year for us. Uh, so take care, everyone. I will catch you next week, and I'll try and do this a bit later. Oh, shit, maybe I won't. Might even be a late one next week. It might even be a Saturday one next week. I do have some things on. I'll come back to you. Thanks for watching. Catch you next time.